Hi, welcome to another episode of Open Mic. I'm Mike Morse, your host. Thank you for being here. Thank you for watching. Thank you for listening. If you've watched episodes of Open Mic, you have seen lots of episodes on wrongful convictions. You know that I am uh, I have a passion for talking about these things and fixing these things. And you've sat through and listened to Aaron Salter tell his stories and Kenny Waneko tell his stories. And, you know, you hope that those are the only two, right? But there are hundreds. And today on Open Mic, we have Jimmy Dennis, who spent 25 years on death row for a murder he absolutely did not commit. And as you, as I'm reading through New York Times articles and Rolling Stones articles, it's another upsetting story that is going to make your head want to explode. And I can't, as a lawyer, it's so hard to see what kind of horrible legal defense he got. Looks like this horrible lawyer that he had is still practicing law in Philadelphia, which is upsetting. I don't know if he's been disciplined or not, but we're going to welcome Jimmy Dennis to the show. Who's going to take us through uh, the tragedy that he went through. You never know who you're going to see. Be one guy one-on-one my whole career. What you're going to hear. Not a lot of desperate people in the city. Or what they've got to say. When you can take people inside of a crime. That's what you're going to hear on my podcast, Open Mic. Find it where you find your podcasts. So welcome Jimmy to the show. Thank you very much for having me, Mike. I appreciate being here. Thank you. It's my pleasure. Unfortunately, over the last several months, I've met several exonerees. Um, I'm actually, my law firm is actually helping right now try to exonerate uh, someone uh, who's sitting in in prison for life uh, who did not get a fair trial because of a because of a bad criminal defense attorney, which surely seems like you had one too, but we'll get into that. Um, but thank you for your willingness to tell us your story today. No, um, thank you for having me. And I appreciate you having me and I appreciate the work you're doing, by the way, you know, that, that for me to understand and know that somebody out there is championing somebody else's cause to fight for the innocent. That makes me feel good in my spirit, really does. So kudos to you and your team. Well, Jimmy, as I as I meet these men, I, and I've met them, I've had lunch with them, I've spent time with them, I've met their families, uh, and I see, and I read through the transcripts, and I see the unfairness. Uh, and it's 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 not just the horrible defense attorneys; it's the judges who aren't taking care of people like you. It's the prosecutors who just want to win at all costs. It's the cops who just want to win at all costs. This system is so messed up. And now I know you're dealing with compensation issues. We're going to, we're going to get into all that. And you know, your story is complicated. It's long, but I want you to start from the beginning and let's, I mean, you know, you were a, uh, a a musician, a singer, Yes, a band called Sensation back in uh, the early '90s. Yes, uh, in Philadelphia. Mm-hmm. Eventually, today we're going to play a beautiful song that you sent to me that uh, I'd like my listeners to hear and be able to 
listen to more of your music. Um, but tell me about your life before this happened. Where, what, how old were you? Uh, where were you living? So I, I grew up in Abbey's Ford projects in North Philadelphia. I was 21 years old. I was a singer songwriter. Um, I had a group by the name of sensation. We were on the cusp of doing some major things. We had interests from people in the music industry. And I was a father to uh, my oldest daughter and a daughter on the way. I was a, I was a son. I was a uh, brother. Uh, I was a friend to many people. And uh, music was my passion um, and my love. And it still is today. And for all intents purposes is a tragic crime was committed by three perpetrators and the city bandied about going to um, neighborhoods to pick up what they call stick up boys or whatever the case may be. And when they got to Abbott's Ford projects in North Philadelphia, um, uh, they had picked up a group of stick up boys and um, forced, started forcing them to lie. And it just went from there. It just spiraled out of control from there. And next thing you know, um, as soon as I heard my name in any type of wrongdoing, I did what most people say, uh, the majority of people say the innocent person is supposed to do. So as soon as I heard my name in something so heinous and so horrible, I went down to the police station, sat there, signed in, asked them, did they want to speak to me? Um, sat there for hours upon hours. They said they did not. And I left and I went about my life as I always went about my life, having rehearsal uh, with my group, uh, being in the studio, doing shows, so on and so forth. And uh, a, about a month later, um, my life was destroyed and the nightmare began. And you talking about my family and my friends being devastated, you talking about um, everybody in the city being devastated because the city was crying out in pain because it was all kind of type kind of crimes for possessions going on. And when this happened, it was a very high profile case. And what the police officers did, and it starts with the police officers that came from the Frank Rizzo era of Philadelphia. And I'm sure if your listeners aren't familiar with Frank Rizzo, Frank Rizzo um, was a police commissioner that was uh, corrupt and evil, period, point blank. He was a racist. And he did a lot of horrible things in the era of Philadelphia. And these police officers was from that era. And what they were doing was they looked for anybody to be a scapegoat. And they... Uh, did so many horrible things just in terms of corruption, right? Um, concealing evidence, destroying evidence, so on and so forth. Anything that you can name, uh, getting witnesses to lie, uh, intimidation, so on and so forth. If you read through my two legal opinions of August 23rd, uh, excuse me, August 21st, 20, uh, 2013, by the Honorable Judge Anita Brody from the Federal District Court, 
who's worked on the NFL case. She's one of the most respected judges in the country. Um, from the very first sentence, she says that I'm innocent in this legal uh, opinion, right? And then you go, then you go to the um, legal opinion of August 23rd, 2016, from the highest court in Pennsylvania, the Third Circuit of Pennsylvania, where they talk about my innocence and a grave miscarriage of justice. And now that particular case, if you read it, helps innocent people come home all over the country um, as we speak. And and um, it, it lays out all the police and prosecutor corruption. So I want, want everybody to know that corruption in Philadelphia with the police and with the prosecutor's office is the very fabric is in the very fabric of Philadelphia. But now we have positivity with Larry Krasner trying to do a wonderful job in Philadelphia. He's um, um, on the front line of helping innocent people um, get out of jail. But 30 years, 30 years later. Yeah, but 30 better years late, later. Better late than never. Better late than never, but for somebody like me, somebody uh, like uh, Anthony Wright, um, and other many, many other names, William Niaz and other innocent people that I could go down a litany of lists of names, right, that um, were hurt. And these same police officers um, have done this not only to myself, but to um, 20 or more people that were on death row or in prison, period. If you look at my lawsuit, you'll see it laid out in there. If you read Anthony Wright, lawsuit, an innocent man that had won $10 million from the city just last year. It's laid out in his lawsuit, all the egregious things that these police officers and prosecutors um, done to me and to him, but also to many other people. So um, when I say it's in the very fabric of Philadelphia uh, back in the 80s, in the 90s, in the 2000s, that's exactly what it is. And okay. people are resistant to that type of change. That's why they want Larry Krasner out of office now. Okay. Because he's so trying to do the right thing. Let's 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 back up. Right. So, let let's get to the facts. I mean, you know, I know the system has been corrupt in Philadelphia in lots and lots of cities. Philadelphia in the early 90s was dealing with a very high hom very high homicide rate. There was over 350 a year back then, which is a which is a very big number. Um, it was a high profile case. It was a 17 year old girl who was robbed of earrings and then shot in the neck and killed. Um, lots and lots of eyewitnesses, um, dozens of eyewitnesses. Right. And you know, I'm debating how much into the weeds we want to get into the evidence. But as I've been doing my research over the last few days, nothing tied you to this murder. You were absolutely you, nothing. You had a uh, rock solid alibi. Yes. Uh, the eyewitnesses uh, were coerced and later recanted. There was no physical evidence. You didn't have a car. The immediate multiple witnesses said that the murderer was five nine five ten. You are shorter than me, which is shocking. Is five yeah. four, which which is a big difference. There's a big difference between five four and five ten. 
Yeah, and and let me just lay out the the uh identity of the perpetrators. So the perpetrators were said to be 5'10 to six foot tall, 180 to 200 pounds, and dark skin complexion. And I want your audience to understand when I say dark skin complexion black male, they're speaking of uh Miles Davis, the jazz trumpeter. That's dark skin complexion. They're speaking of the famous actor Wesley Snipe. Uh, that's dark skin complexion. As you look and you see, I'm brown skin. Now, I'm 5'4", brown skin, and I weighed at the time only 125 pounds. So the disparity between 180 to 200 pounds and dark skin complexion and 5'10 to 6' foot tall is night and day. And this crime took place in a matter of seconds. And when you talk to the leading uh, mistaken identity experts to deal with the human mind, the human mind cannot identify nobody in one to three seconds, let alone uh, two minutes properly. And so this is what you have where the nightmare uh, began for me. Yeah. the I mean, we've talked on the podcast about how bad identifications are right and the misidentifications right. but in this case you know witnesses right away said this was a tall person you were right. never you're five four i mean five yes i'm five six five four for a man is short right i was you, measured you, i was measured they actually took a the police were lying in court talking about i was five eight and so on and so forth complete lie they actually took a tape measure out in the courtroom and I was five four, period. Now I mean, so I mean again, there was, you know, you did. Did you? I mean, you you had you gotten into trouble before this? Did you have a? Were you? Were I had, you, uh, I had in the system. A, I had a. Uh, I had a small probation case um, that I was on uh, for uh, uh, drugs. So that's how my picture was down at the police station, and I did so good with the. Um, you know, back, so you're dealing in the 80s and the 90s where we had the several police uh, uh, fraction police stations were running through neighborhood planting drugs on people, so on and so forth. So that was the beginning of the nightmare right there, too. So that was another case. I did so good on probation that I didn't even have to go. The, the guy would call in or just show up to the house because he, he, he couldn't believe I was on, you know, I got, you know. It was one of those things. So um, that's how my police, this old picture of me was down the police station that the police officers kept in the number one spot. They never switched it around. And then nobody never positive ID the picture. What they said was, I think the, the police would, you know, pressure people to point me out. And then they would say, I think so. And then, and then you could read the actual physical statement when the police officer said, can you be sure? Every witness said no, no, but I still was arrested and went through the rigmaroles and all the uh, nightmare that I went through uh, in prison. And all this is an actual documentation. And keep in mind, you mentioned about a dozen or so witnesses. Keep in mind, the dozen or so witnesses didn't testify. Only three testified. And the other nine, right? The other six and nine that said it wasn't me. They didn't testify. So let's I talk wonder about why. You, so you have a court-appointed attorney? No, no. You, you I hired an attorney. 
Right, right. I had a attorney that uh, that I and my father had paid for, and I never had a court appointed uh, uh, attorney, but I okay. didn't have a good attorney. So you picked the wrong attorney. Picked the wrong attorney. He had lots of cases. He wasn't giving you the time of day. He wasn't returning your phone calls. Yes. And he did not present a good defense for you. Did you, no, did, but, you did you know this was happening when it was happening? So um my knowledge, I started um getting into the law as soon as I got in prison. But you know yourself as a lawyer, you're not going to be good in the law after three or six months or even nine months or a year, right? So I knew stuff was going on, but there was nothing I could do. I didn't become really good in the law where I could have a, a legal conversation with you, anybody else, into 2000. But what I want to say to you is it didn't matter what lawyer I had. The lies from the police and the prosecutor was so egregious that I could have had you or anybody else. I could have had Johnny Cochran, any lawyer you can name. It wouldn't have mattered. So the onus is not on the attorney. It's on the police. It's on the prosecutor because their corruption was so immense and so insurmountable, right, that there was no possible way that any good attorney worth his salt would have been able to make the outcome be any more different. I, the prosecutor, Roger King, was is like, you're watching Law and Order. It's all theatrics, it's all lies, it's all to incite. And he would lie and then he would come back and he would change it. He's notorious. If you look up Roger King, you'll see what he did to me, he did to uh, uh, innocent men in the Lex Street murder case. That was another high profile case in Philadelphia, William Niaz and so on and so forth. So this guy was notorious for doing this. Chester Hoffman case um, that they just did an episode of Netflix on uh, for the innocent files. So the corruption was too deep from the police and from the prosecutor, Roger King and these uh, police officers. So I agree with almost everything, but if jo Johnny Cochran was still alive, I'm just kidding. Big fan, big fan of uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Johnny Cochran. The Johnny Cochran yeah. law firm is still, you know, yes. bringing justice around this country. Um, but I hear what you're saying. So tell, let's talk about those three eyewitnesses at trial. Um, there was three eyewitnesses who said they pointed you out to the jury. And I agree with you. I hear you. I, I know there was corruption behind that. There was coercion and threats to get them to lie. And, and I have, I, I, we've had other exonerees who that's hard when they, when they point and say, that's him and you knew it wasn't you and they're pointing at you. First right. of all, how did, how did that feel sitting in that courtroom, having three people say he murdered her? I watched him do it and you knew you were on a bus several miles right. away. Uh, you didn't have that same outfit. You're six to eight inches shorter. I mean, like what the hell is going through your brain? My my initial um, from the moment I was uh, stolen away, I was transformed into another world and I couldn't believe what had happened to me. Keep in mind, I'd never been locked up before in my life, period. This is my first time ever being 
in prison or whatever. Um, and what I went through in prison, and I suffer from PTSD now from the trauma that I suffered in prison, so on and so forth, with the beatings, uh, being jumped and guards and prisoners, so on and so forth, um, setting me up, jumping me, so on and so forth. And then to be able to sit there in the courtroom and to have people uh, lying on you, I was devastated. Um, the tears were rolling down my eyes. Um, I couldn't believe this was happening to me. And um, my life was being destroyed every second, every word came out of their mouth that wasn't true. I, I, yeah, I, you know, being accused of a crime that you didn't commit is bad, but having the prosecutor and the police convince people to lie that it was you, I can't imagine anything worse. Um, and as you're sitting there, I mean, how did your lawyer do on cross-examining these people? I have not he read the did, transcripts yet. I don't have access to right. that. He did, he did the best. Listen, he pointed out what they said. He pointed out the disparity. So he did the best he could uh, under the circumstances, right? And I was sitting there writing notes, giving him notes as well, so on and so forth. But the bottom line is is no amount of uh, uh, defense could stop that train that had been set in place by these police officers and uh, the prosecutor because they had set out to, they set out from day one, what you need to understand and know when you read the legal opinions, they set out from day one to cover up the truth. And they did just that. And they had a welfare receipt, which proved my innocence. That that's one of the that's in the, the legal opinion, this legal opinion and the other legal opinion that they may disappear. Tell me so, about the welfare receipt. I didn't read that in the articles. So the welfare receipt, I had seen somebody that was like you. I don't know you, right? And But you live in the neighborhood. And so I seen you. So I spoke, hey, how you doing? They were on the bus, so on and so forth. And that welfare receipt, prove my innocence how and they buried it it had the time that i well, i'm sorry hold on, hold on hold on what's a welfare receipt so a welfare receipt is a document that when people go go to get their money and their food stamps from the welfare office right it's time stamped Got so it. from the moment they get that that receipt it's time stamped right so that was important because um, it had the time on there upon which I had seen this acquaintance from the neighborhood that I did not know personally, and it proved my innocence also. You went to pick up food stamps? No, or... no, 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 no. The acquaintance that I seen on the bus and then later got off the bus, bus with, right? Um, I seen her and I spoke to her after we got off the bus, right? And they took, they, the police went to her, got that welfare receipt from her, told her that the time on the welfare receipt is not indeed, in fact, the time that she seen me because she could not tell military time, right? So they told her that she didn't see me at that time and that they threatened her and they forced her 
to testify and say that she's seen me at a later time than what she initially seen me, right? And they made the welfare receipt disappear for years. And it wasn't until 1998 that another lawyer that I hired discovered the welfare receipt and brought it to light what they had did. How the heck did he find that little piece of paper? Through investigation. I, you know, he had found out uh, what she had did that day, what she, you know, and I said that I uh, seen her get on the bus uh, at a particular stop uh, in the Germantown area of Philadelphia. And then we got off at uh, Henry and Midville. And as she exited the bus and walked across the street to get on the 32, and I was standing at the corner, I waved at her. And they buried that welfare receipt because it proved my innocence, along with them destroying any kind of DNA evidence that disappeared uh, out of the evidence room, right? Which all is in documentation of court proceedings that uh, evidence that we wanted to get tested for DNA uh, uh, testing, which proved my innocence, all went and was destroyed and disappeared by these police officers. We have, we have, we have documentation of these police officers signing out the homicide file, then getting on the witness stand lying, saying that they didn't, then being presented with the actual documents showing that they signed out the homicide file and it never returned again, um, never to be seen because it had documentation in there of other people uh, confessing to the crime and other documents and other leads that were more viable, so on and so forth, right? And when it came to, think about this, when it came to clothing that they um, lied about, said that they got from my uh, father's house, which they did not, and none of the clothes fit me, but they presented to the jury uh, clothing, uh, but they didn't show them, they just said that they had these clothes, right? None of the clothes were tested ever, the documents we have, then they presented, oh, he had these clothes, but with the clothes, they suddenly disappear before trial, right? Because the clothes fit my father. The clothes fit my mother. My father and my mother was over 200 pounds. They were, for lack of a better term, you know, overweight. My sister and my children's mother at the time all was overweight. They were pregnant. And they took female clothing, right? It'll be like you at 10 years old trying on your father's suit jacket. It would swallow you up, right? That's the clothes. If it doesn't fit, you must acquit. And those are the clothes that they took, and they made disappear. And then, and then, and then at then at a hearing, when asked what happened to the clothes, they said the cleaners threw them away. Listen to this: you and I both know you are a lawyer, right? I know law, and no police uh, station in their evidence room is any cleaning companies or civilians ever allowed in there. It was a flat out lie. And everybody in the courtroom gasped when it was said. But I still suffered, I, I still continued to suffer in prison on death row, suffering from two execution warrants, suffering from losing my father, suffering from dealing with my daughters growing up without me, suffering from losing friends and family and loved ones, sitting around with hopelessness and uh, going through PTSD, not even knowing 
I was going through PTSD, suffering from depression, putting on weight just to eat, eat, eating just to comfort myself, but still not comforting myself because my soul is being assaulted and dying every single day from what these police officers did to me and what the prosecutor did to me. I am beyond mortified that the legal system treated you this way. I'm so sorry that, that, that this has happened to you. Um, Thank you. The, those clothing, I mean, when I, when I referenced Johnny Cochran just now, had the clothing been there and you tried it on, it would have been ridiculous. And yeah. that's, why, that's why they hit it, because they knew that it wasn't going to fit you. And that's why um, I was destroyed, never to be seen again. But they took female clothing. They took my mother's and my sister's and my, none of this clothes, clothing fit me because I was, I had a diminutive frame at 125 pounds. We had thousands, uh, tons of pictures. Anybody that know me right then, you know, when you go and you get locked up, they take your weight, they take your height, right? I don't have a miracle cure for losing weight in one day and all that kind of stuff. I, you know, there's no magic here. You know, there's no way to change my skin complexion to make it look, you know, not brown skin. You know what I mean? I wish I had more melanin. <laughs> Did anything you know? right? Did anything ever happen to the uh, police officers or the prosecutors after um, it was found? Uh, all this evidence was found out. I mean, anything ever happened to them disciplinary wise? No, no. And that's a common no. th theme, and th a common no. theme that we keep seeing that there is zero accountability. There is no accountability. Since I came home and I've been advocating for other innocent men, the other thing that I've been advocating for and for your listeners to know this, if all of us want a fair and just society, right? We must advocate for police and prosecutors to be locked up. We need to pass law and legislation. We don't need to put a Band-Aid with a memorandum, with a fake policy, we don't need to do memorandums where you suggest and people go, oh, something was done. No, nothing is done. Police corruption and prosecutor misconduct is not going to stop anywhere in this country until all of us in society that wants a peaceful and fair society and a just society come together and say, listen, we need to put these bills in the Senate, in the House, and they need to get passed, period. All this about police training is bull crap. It's not about police training. You see this every day in your everyday work of life. How many lawyers see that it's not about police training because you can have a racist police officer or a police officer that is prejudiced join the force, right? And they're not going through any psych, psych evaluations. Think about Tamir Rice in Ohio where the police officer left the police force in Florida, came to Ohio, and then killed Tamir Rice. And now, even after that, he's on another police force now. This is a problem that we rather talk about training and whether talk about locking them up. So we always like to use a caveat about good police officers, okay? We know that, but we need to stop saying that. We need to deal with the fact that there are bad apples. And what happens to a bad apple when it's in a core? 
it ruins the whole bunch. And if you don't have police officers that are coming forward, getting the bad police officers off the police force, they're complicit in the act of the bad ones. Tell me what it was like spending 25 years on death row for a crime you did not commit. Every single day was a day-to-day assault uh, on my soul. Um, Every second felt like um, somebody had a gun to my head playing Russian roulette. Um, I remember one of my execution warrants was on for when they were going to kill me was on my daughter's birthday. And if you can imagine um, something like that and having to call home, I never called home to my mother and daughters and didn't and not without a positive tone or positive, but telling them that everything was going to be all right. But you really didn't know, you know. Um, And there's a lot of things that go on death row with guards and prisoners. And there's a lot of things that I dealt with in prison because of the circumstances of this uh, case. You can't be in prison for anything like this and walk through prison cool and easy from the county to state prison. um, I went through hell. I literally went through hell with the guards setting me up to be jumped. I have 30, I lost 30% of my hearing from prison uh, tax. And I had, I would always defend myself, you know, but you're defending yourself against three and four and five people. And it's coming from everywhere. I never knew where it was coming from ever. You know, my head was on a swivel at all times. Um, I had teeth in my mouth that are gone in my uh, mouth um, that are gone because of the assault. And I and I kept my head up and I dealt with it and I never said a word about it. What what was the delay? Thank God you were not executed. Thank God. I have chills saying that. And I, 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 yeah. what, what, what was the delay in those 25 years? Was there multiple appeals going on? Yeah, there were multiple appeals going on from the district attorney. You go back and you can read articles on the Huffington Post by David A. Love. You can read a, uh, he did a wonderful article on me calling out the, a prosecutor at the time, Seth Williams, who, uh, after I got out of prison, uh, went to jail six months later um, for uh, fraud and corruption. Um, That's the type of stuff that I was dealing with, Um, not because of me, but because of other stuff that he had done. And he was supposed to be this person that was going to reform Philadelphia and never did. And David A. Love uh, did an article in the Huffington Post with... uh, uh, on me talking, you know, calling him out about not letting me out of prison. Uh, Michael, Michael Collier, um, a Philadelphia attorney and activist, did an article in the Black Tribune about calling Seth Williams out about not letting me out of prison. So people knew what was going on. 
people knew what was going on and people was trying to speak out and people were speaking out about my innocence because everybody knew. Anybody that sat in that courtroom or anybody that ever read the trial uh, transcript, one of the reasons why I had so much support around the world and I'm grateful to everybody that ever wrote me a letter or supported me or built a website and spoke out about my innocence and advocated for me was that I never asked anybody to take take my word at face value. I was the first one in this country to put all the trial transcripts, the appeal briefs, all the legal documents from the police and everybody online and would give them out to people so people could support me. Because there's no way, and we left didn't leave anything, there's no way that you're gonna read those documents, trial transcripts, the, the, the discovery and everything, the appeal briefs, you're hearing what they're saying, what we, and you're going to walk away with James A. Dennis is not innocent. You, you, you're just not going to do it. You know, you mentioned all the support you got from around the world, and I wasn't following your case back then. There's so many cases to follow, but I did notice and I did read quotes from Susan Sarandon and Ed Asner and, and others and, yeah. it, you know, you really did have a ground swell of support, which was amazing. And, you know, it's interesting that I'm, as I'm, I'm fairly new into really diving into this stuff, Jimmy, but, you know, a, a friend of mine, Kenny Wanenko, who spent a lot of years in prison uh, for a rape that he didn't commit, didn't get the attention it needed until a local free press writer started writing about it. And right. it caught the attention of the innocence clinics and he's finally out and home and with his family and friends. And there's no formula for that, but no. there are, st but do you disagree? There's lots of people in prison right now having the same type of terrible result you had with police uh, misconduct and prosecut prosecutorial misconduct. And, to rely on attention, to rely on getting a celebrity or a writer to write an article to bring attention to it is not easy. No, it's not easy at all. I I just got lucky. Um, I used um, I had my supporters trying to get to all type kind of celebrity celebrities, right? And it wasn't just any celebrities. It was people I knew that I felt were true to their convictions. So Susan Sarandon and Ed Asner is somebody that we uh, went after. I was watching CBS morning show and I just seen that he was doing a play in New York. And I got uh, one of my supporters, uh, Darren Motis to go. And he went out to the theater, seeing the play and then passing the information. We sent him the documents and then he was on board. Uh, Susan Sarandon, we went through different channels and we finally got a, a line on her and she graciously um, supported us. Uh, Jennifer Thompson, um, the advocate the, that wrote the book, you know, Picking Cotton, she's an advocate. Um, uh, uh, we were able to get her. She's one of my biggest supporters and friends to this day. She wrote a, uh, a best-selling book called Picking Cotton because she was a victim of a heinous crime and picked out the wrong man. And we were able to um, get these people. But that that came 
many years later. I mean, I was trying from day one. I was writing innocent organizations, trying to get help. Like Centrinian Ministries was the first letter I wrote when I was in uh, prison. Um, I wrote many organizations talking about my innocence. And I was just trying. Like every day I would write over 40 to 50 letters to people in the organizations putting um, my case information sheets with the facts and everything in there and how people could reach out to me and my supporters just trying to get help. So, yeah, it's it, it's, it's it's not important. easy. It, it's not easy, but it's an important part of it. Yes, it's an important part of it. I'm working on uh, two cases of innocence now uh, in Philadelphia. Ralph Trent Stokes, that has been on death row for over 30 some odd years, and Abdul Hardy, um, who's been in prison for over 30 years, both for innocent men. Um, uh, Anthony Reed uh, case. Uh, there's a few cases that I'm working on. Uh, Anthony Reed, all innocent men, and I'm working on these cases, trying to help them um, uh, get out of prison and get relief. And um, it's very difficult um, to get any type of um, support and get people to write articles and to want to do a story on just the facts. You know what I mean? You don't want anybody one way or the other. They can have their opinion, but you just want the facts in there. You know, and that's that's hard within itself, uh, you know, to figure out who to contact and who could be fair and wants to be fair, you know? Absolutely. Yeah, I, I mean, it's a it's an interesting part of this whole story. And... You know, you have so many nuances that we haven't even covered. I mean, we could spend five hours covering the nuances and the uh, the band member, uh, the buddy of yours, the band member of yours who lied and said they saw you with the same gun that night, right? And, you know, um, I'm going to send you some links of a couple of the podcasts we've done because, okay. um, you know, we had... Um, we we've had people on who who've had lies said about them. And I interviewed a juror at one of the trials with the man who was wrongfully convicted together on a podcast. Oh, wow. they've actually, they've actually become friends. Oh, wow. And, nice. and, 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 and as the juror was, you know, as I'm sitting there thinking, putting myself in his position and now they're friends and he admits it was a massive mistake, but he's sitting there the evidence in your case, I'll use in that case as an example, you know, a, a friend of yours said that night I saw him with the same gun, three eyewitnesses pointing at you. If you were a juror in the same trial, would you have convicted yourself? No, because, because here's the difference is because there was, so let's take the friend that wasn't a friend. And I just want to tell you, the onus is not even on that young man at the time. He was a kid, right? He was like 19-year-old, 18-year-old kid, right? That the police forced to lie. He had a drug case, right, that they had locked him up for. And he had a physical assault against a pregnant woman, right, that he was facing years in prison for, right? The police dropped those charges, right? And got him to lie after exchange for testimony after he did that. That's number one. Wait, wait, hold on. Was that brought up at trial? Uh, uh, yeah, we, we, uh, tried to bring it out at trial. And it was tried. 
was yeah, ignored yeah, try- by the jury. Yes. And keep in mind, the other thing you have to realize about my jury is I had the foreman of the jury and another jury member going to sleep. All this is in documentation that they have admitted years later. Right. So that's the difference. Then you have the other evidence when you know that these three witnesses said gave conflicting statements. Right. Okay. so if you sitting on a jury and you hear conflicting statements where they said it wasn't me, but now later they come to trial and say it's me, but I don't fit the physical description and they got seconds, one second, three seconds, 10 seconds to see a crime and you really know that the human mind doesn't work that way, you can't, you can't, you can't convict an innocent person and send them to prison. And not to mention that even though the group member said what he said, there were, there were, uh, Three other group members that said he lied, and we brought out the fact of why he was lying. Did you have you ever talked to any of the jurors? I have not talked to any of the jurors, but my lawyers have talked to the uh, jurors. Um, I was able and blessed to get a wonderful law firm in 2000 by the uh, name of Arnold and Porter Law Law Firm. My lawyers were Ryan Giles. Amy McGinnis of Rowe, Rebecca uh, Dubin Gordon, and uh, Melanie Gavstack, Megan Martin, Emily and Stuart Lynn, and uh, Kitty Behan. And um, this wonderful team uh, went about proving my innocence, but they spoke to the jury members and they talked about if they knew the evidence about uh, all the evidence that were under, uh, that was. Uh, uh, turned over later, uh, over 10, 15 years later, that they would not have made the outcome that they have made if they knew about the welfare receipts, so on and so forth. And I just want to just maybe kind of clear something up so your listeners can understand. The young lady that was acquaintance, she went to the welfare office that day. That's why she had a welfare receipt. She went to pick up her welfare receipt then after she went to the welfare, uh, came from the welfare office, she later got on the bus after she did a little shopping, later got on the bus, and that's the bus that I seen her on. And then we got off uh, at Henry and Midvale, and I spoke to the acquaintance and da-da-da. So, um, yeah. So I think a jury member has a duty to listen to the evidence and weigh it properly. Right. But you as a lawyer know that most prosecutors try to get a police friendly jury. Right. That's the jury that they want to have. Um, They also don't want people like, for example, my jury was made up of people that really feared everything that was going on in the city. And if it was somebody like you that went to college and that was uh, was intelligent enough to really think for themselves or could relate to me in any type of way, whether you were black, Hispanic, or whether you were young and uh, uh, really not sitting at home and just, you know, just doing your daily chores or whatever the case may be, or however you want to phrase it, they wanted a certain jury type, people that were police friendly. And that's what they got. They didn't want anybody young and they didn't want anybody that 
had right, extensive but that, but Jimmy, But Jimmy, that's the case of every type of trial in America, whether it be a civil case or criminal True. case. All lawyers True. are trying to get the stack the jury with favorable jurors. True. True. You had a case where all this evidence came out later. And what I was asking you, and you, di- you disagreed with me, but I'm going to push you a little bit. All of this oh, new oh, evidence, okay. all of this new evidence was hidden. It didn't yeah. come out for 10 or 15 years. And then when the judges in the court of appeals system looked at it, they're like, yeah, this guy couldn't have done it. All these people right. recanted. But at the time of your jury trial, right? It, it, all the evidence, not all, a lot of the evidence was hidden. People lied. They recanted right. later. There was one man who went, who, who perjured himself, told the prosecutor he didn't want to testify. They made him testify anyway. So what I'm saying to you is the juror heard a perfect prosecution story, just how the prosecutors wanted it, which was full of lies, full of holes. Your lawyer did as good a job as he could have. It wasn't obviously adequate enough. He wasn't Johnny Cochran and he, uh, he didn't succeed and he wasn't able to convince the jury based upon that evidence. So my question to you was, you know, based upon what they did here, an incomplete picture. They heard mm-hmm. just uh, they heard exactly what the prosecutor wanted them to hear because they hid all the good stuff for you. Right. Do you blame that jury? No, I, I, I don't blame the jury. No, I don't. Listen, I don't have any blame for the jury. Uh, I don't have any blame for the witnesses in terms of I'm not holding any type kind of, you know, ill feelings towards them. I wish everybody the best, um, you know, so on and so forth. But I do believe and I wish in a perfect world, my um, jury would have been um, 12 Angry Men, right? That 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 movie, I, I think, where Peter Fonda is in the jury room. And he's fighting so hard to make people see the truth. I just wish it was somebody uh, like that in there for me because the physical description was enough alone to cast doubt on everything that everybody was saying. All right, let's fast forward. How old are you now? I just turned uh, 50 on August 28th. Happy birthday. Are you a Virgo? Thank you. I am a Virgo. I love being a Virgo. <laughs> I'm a Virgo too. I just had my birthday last right. week. Happy, Happy birthday. birthday. my man. Thank you. Happy Thank birthday. you. So I'm just a few years older than you. So tell me about your family situation now. Um, How many kids you have and what's happening? I have uh, two beautiful daughters um, uh, that I love uh, very much. You know, my youngest daughter was born one week after I was stolen away. Yeah. That's the other tragedy. Of, how how old is she now? She's uh, 27. Um, yeah, 27. Yeah. That and, is, um, that's a really b- big blessing that you guys, how is the, are you guys, how's the relationship? Were you able to mend it? Um, you know, I was, I was the best father I could be on death row. If you can imagine trying to have two daughters, um, for 15 minutes. But um, when you really get into the crux of my story, you'll be surprised that um, some of the things that I 
tried to do from that death row cell. I, my supporters were very um, good um, at helping with my children. So kudos to them, you know, along with my family and my friends. But um, the relationship with my daughters is very well. But you must understand that they suffered and they suffered greater than me. Um, my oldest daughter uh, just turned 30. And I meant to say that my youngest daughter is 26. She'd be 27 uh, later on this year. Um, but they suffered greater than me because they were without their uh, dad for so many years. And they suffered from um, depression and other um, mental uh, issues that they deal with now, just like me. So it's been... Um, beautiful reconnecting but we've had some um difficult times for their uh for uh my youngest daughter mental health um uh yeah it, it's well, just you know without going into detail yeah, you don't i don't i, I didn't mean difficult. i didn't mean you to go into too much detail because i don't want to yeah. get too personal with you but i i wish you the best and i hope that that heals itself over time because this was clearly not your fault. And I feel horrible that that damaged your relationship. I have three daughters and, and I hope that you guys get back on track. Um, I really do from the bottom of my heart. And you, so you're married. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I, I'm, uh, uh, I'm, we say we married, but we don't have a document, okay. but yeah, you know, that's just a piece of paper. I'm don't worry back. about that. Right. You're such I'm a tech. Going, you know, I'm, I'm married in my heart and I'm going to marry this woman. Yeah. When the time well, is, you know, when I'm able to, you know, do it, do what I want to. That's great. And you're, and you're back to creating music. Yes. Um, and yeah. Tell me, tell Sorry. me about that. I, well, listen, how about we, let's play your song. Okay. You sent me a song. I yeah, love this song. Yeah. I listened to it a couple times. Oh, thank you, man. So thank you. here's what we're going to do. We're going to play it right now. I'm one of the people who built the country. Until this moment, there is scarcely any hope for the American dream. Because the people who are denied participation in it, by their very presence, will wreck it.
So tell me about that song. It was beautiful. Tell me about it. So um, I wrote Hate the Skin I'm In um, about everything that's going on in the country with police brutality, the Breonna Teller situation, the Elijah McClain, and every name that you could think of, whether it's Michael Brown or Emmett Till, uh, you know, from back in the day. And um, the song is about um just stating the fact that racist people hate the skin we in but that we are a beautiful resilient race of people and that we can get through anything and we can overcome anything that's what the song is about um yeah and it's um everywhere right now all musical platforms people can listen to it on all uh musical platforms spotify itunes title you name it i'm there and what's the future for you in music? I mean, are you trying to get the band back together? Are any of those guys still around? Um, I work, yeah, um, the guys are still around. Um, I work with uh, Mark uh, Five. Um, I wrote a, a beautiful record for him. Uh, me and him work together all the time. Um, but the band isn't necessarily getting back together. Um, I'm doing a solo thing. And uh, he's doing a solo thing, but um, I'm writing and producing records for him. And he shot my video uh, to a song called You Said um, that's out right now. And if people could go on YouTube uh, and view, they could go on my YouTube channel, Jimmy, Jimmy Dennis Music. Um, and they could uh, get the song You Said on all musical platforms. So him and I are still working together and still doing... Um, trying to live out the dream yeah and that's great um i just want to keep making um good music that touches people's soul and make people think like like hate the skin i'm in i have another song um that i put out last year r&b record called all you done went and did it which uh that i wrote with uh, uh daryl piano man marshall and um i do um, some writing, some of my music writing with him. Um, and uh, Michael Boykins um, produces uh, my music and I co-produce. So, and uh, Gwen Jackson, um, I'm, I'm, I'm actually humble. And the reason why I want to tell you this real quick, I came home and my childhood friend, Gwen Jackson, who is a professional singer, sung background for Harry Belafonte, Toot and Amatis and Baja Benton and all these did, and, and sung on so many records that you heard in the background. She's wonderful, did Broadway. Um, I was uh, welcomed back into the music community with open arms from all these professionals, whether it's Michael Boykins, whether it's Daryl Piano Man Marshall, Gwen Jackson, whether it's Richard Waller, uh, whether it's uh, Lamar, Maury, Alexander, um, and all these uh, art, uh, uh uh, names, producers, and uh, uh, musicians have worked with some of the best in the business. And now I'm working with them. And I just want to say thank you to all of them for welcoming me home in that way, because the records um, that I uh, made with them, um, uh, I hope everybody will listen to. Uh, Tracy Rum Nelson is another guy that uh, produced on my first record, You Said. Um, and these are wonderful musicians and producers, and I'm just having a ball 
just writing music and being back in the studio and the creative process. And I write everything from top to bottom. I write all my lyrics. I write all the music. And then I just go in the studio with these wonderful musicians and they play and they, you know, and they do their thing on my records and they, you know, add their spices, you know, and it's a beautiful uh, pot of gumbo that we do. Yeah. It's, it's, listen, I, I love your music. We're going to put thank lots you. of links below so people can check it out, oh, buy thank it. You. Thank you and so and any other, any other, you know, groups or anything you want us to promote, please get me those links. I um, will. I, I will. Anything we can do to help. And, you know, your story, you know, we've, we've been talking over an hour and your story is uh, not done. I mean, I know you have a, a civil component to your story. Yes. We probably should do episode two on one day, but you know, we really should, uh, you know, the fact that tell me if I got this part, right. The, the prosecutor, you know, they, they, the federal court said that you were innocent and they said, uh, to the prosecutors, either let them out or retry this case. And they said, we'll let you go home right now, right this second, after 25 years of death row, but you got to sign a document called a NOLO contendere plea or a no contest plea. Basically, you're not admitting to anything, but you're kind of admitting to something. And now the state and the prosecutor's officers are, are trying to use that as a shield so you can't collect your wrongful compensation money which you're entitled to clearly, which would be millions of dollars. And you chose to sign it rather than to say, F you, I didn't do this. I'm not signing shit and let them retry you, which could have taken five more years. Did I sum that up kind of right? You summed it up kind of right. So okay. let me give you the, this is very important for your listeners to understand. There were two key components in this, right? And the first component was that my mother um, is very ill and I had lost my father. And when all this came about, that changed everything, right? Another situation that tragically changed everything because things would have been very different had the election have went differently in this country. And that's just me being honest with your listeners. It went from that they wasn't going to take me back to trial to once the election was won by the current president that they would take us back to trial because they would appeal to the US Supreme Court because they knew in their minds that by the time we got up there, one of the judges would be coming down and another judge would be appointed. That's that's the that's the little crux of it. So things change, right? And with the U.S. Supreme Court, um, they really don't care about innocence or not. They they surmise everything, as you know. If they conclude in their eyes that you had a fair trial, that's it. You're done, right? So all of those components were a factor in the decision that was made. Number one, number two. Um, my innocence, which is never done in these situations, as you very well know, my innocence was read into the record. And the language was changed in that agreement, right? They did not refer to me. All the words that said guilty 
was redacted out of it. Anything that referred to it was redacted out of it. That's the difference. My lawyers read my innocence uh, uh, into the record. I was allowed to say it, and then the words, any words in that agreement were redacted. And I didn't sign any uh, document saying that I would not uh, file a lawsuit. They actually wanted me to, and I did not. And that's the difference between my situation and any other situation that you have ever seen before. Yeah, you're right. You're right. That was clever. And I know you're still fighting the battle and I hope yes. that you win. Thank I hope you. you get the justice you require and deserve and get lots of money for all the crap that you've had to deal with to say the least. Um, and listen, it was a real pleasure meeting you and um, Thank you, Mike. I, I hope to meet you in person one day. I have some friends here too. in town who I'm sure would love you. I have some, uh, friends here in town who are doing all kinds of good things for the exonerated. And um, when we can all meet in person again, we'll have a big get together. Oh we'll man, you. I would love to. We'll fly you I up here. Love you, I, I love, I love your spirit. I love your energy. You feel like a big bundle of love. And I, I'm always, I'm always um, amazed <clears throat> and it, it makes me emotional to say, but I'm always amazed how positive and how loving and how non, um, you know, angry, how not angry you are. I know you're angry, but you're, you're, you're not, that's not consuming your life. You're not allowing it to consume your life. And it's, it's a, it's a thing that the, the exonerees that I've met, uh, all have in common. And it's such a beautiful lesson for the rest of us. Um, that if you could let this stuff go to an extent and you could focus on the positivity of life and trying to rekindle your relationships and focus on forgiveness and love, it, it, it is such a, a wonderful thing to see. I'm I'll sorry, tell I cut you, you off. I, I'll, I'll tell you why, Mike, because, um, I suffer from PTSD, right? And pan panic and anxiety attacks. And I have nightmares uh, almost every night and I'm still suffering and I, uh, you know, have have all these things going on. But life is the most beautiful, precious thing in the world. Right. And yes, I'm bitter, but I use my bitterness to fuel me to fight for other innocent people. The names of the men and women that I told you about. Um, and I want to live life and I, and I want to see everybody, uh, be happy. My family and friends, I lost so much time with my family and friends and I'm trying to get it all back. I lost my music career. And so I'm chasing after my dream with reckless abandonment and any innocent person, we don't have time to sit and wallow because we lost so much and nobody, no matter what you're going through in life, no person should sit and wallow. If you get knocked down, yeah, you got knocked down for a minute. Let's get that resilience up. Let's go forward. Let's be the champion that we can be. And let's run after our dreams with reckless abandonment, right? Because life is short and you can be whatever you want to be. And one day, the dreams that I had when I was a child, because my dad was a musician. My aunt was a musician. My aunt uh, sung on records for Chubby 
Chubby Checkin and Bobby Rodell and Philadelphia International. And my pop played for Harold Melvin and the Blue Notes and so on and so forth. So this is in my DNA. But it was always my dream to make records and bring joy to people's heart. That's all I wanted. And that's all I still want. And I'm going to try to do that every single day with my music. And I'm going to try to do that with my family and friends and also the issues that I care about. I just want justice and peace in the world for everybody. On that note, that was a beautiful statement. Such a pleasure to meet you, Jimmy. Thank you, Mike. Um, pleasure meeting I, you. I have a feeling we'll be in touch and we'll talk again soon. If there's yes, anything I can you. do for you, please call me. Um, and thanks thank for you being for on. That. Thanks for being on Open Mic. Thank you. Thank you for having me. And say hello to your family and Ryan and everybody on your staff. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Right, appreciate we'll it. Thank you, Jimmy. We'll talk soon. Peace. Bye-bye. Wow. Uh, lots of emotions listening to Jimmy's story here. You've heard lots of cases about wrongful convictions, and here's just another one uh, to prove that this criminal justice system that we're all living in needs some significant change. Um, we're going to post some links on the show notes. Please forward this story, this podcast to anybody who might be interested. Subscribe, please comment, like it. And, uh, I look forward to seeing you next time. Thank you for watching and listening.